Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Will you all stand? I'm gonna start our worship this morning by reading a psalm over you. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. I'll search the
He's the only one, amen? He's the only one that gives us complete hope. He's the only one that gives us a lasting joy. He's the only one that can forgive us of our sins. So in light of that, let's confess together, Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. For those of us who believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have that Savior. He not only can, but he has for us. So church, believe the good news. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a Savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And in light of that, we're going to sing of the precious blood of Jesus. It's the only thing that can wash away our sin. So let's sing this song that we know so well. And oh, precious is the flow that makes me wise. Welcome. We're really glad that you decided to worship with us this morning, whether it's your first time ever or if you come every single Sunday to worship with, with us. We're glad that you're here. My name is Margot, and I have the... I'm Anne. Hi. <laughs> and I didn't think you were going to forget me. I just jumped it a little bit. No, I'm glad that you did. Well, we both get to serve on the community team, and I get to serve on the women's team, and we have... Lots of opportunities coming up for you to jump into a small group. It's 2023. Can you believe it? I can't either. So the first opportunity is next Sunday. It's Discover Fellowship, and it's our membership class. So if you want to know why fellowship does the things that we do, jump into this class. It'll be two large groups and then six small groups. And then you know... You know, I'm going to talk about women's Bible studies. They are starting at the end of this month and the beginning of next month. And we have a couple of different parenting opportunities, both in the morning and in the evening. And we have a Hebrew study and we have the Gospel on the Ground by Christy McClellan. Where we meet at 9 in the morning and 6.30 in the evening. And there is child care, but we need you to register now. <laughs> And finally, we're going to do something that we have never done here at Fellowship. We're going to have a women's night of worship. We're calling it WLC for Worship, Learn, Connect. And it is the perfect opportunity for you to grab the women in your small group, go to dinner, and then come here, worship with us. We're going to be over in FSM at 7 o'clock on Tuesday the 24th. And if you have never, ever, been able to commit to a small group, and you've really wanted to meet more of the women that you go to church with, this is the perfect opportunity. Just come by yourself or grab a neighbor or a buddy and see, say, let's just go see what this is like. So, and don't you think women would love that? Yes. <laughs> All of you women should come. It will actually be yes. so much fun. We're going to have between the worship, the connect time, I think it is well worth you carving it out of your schedule, putting it on the calendar, making an effort to go. I think it will be well worth it. So what I have to say pertains to men and women. If you find yourself in young adulthood, so maybe you are a grad student, 
Maybe you are newly married. Maybe you are just working hard, working in professional world. We want to get to know you. We have a new ministry here at Fellowship for young adults, and we need to know who you are. And so we would love it if you guys would hop by our booth in the back today so we could meet you, uh, get a little bit of information from you. But we have some events and things coming up that we would love for you to know about, but we need to know who you are first. So if you would just come to the booth, that would be awesome. Dave and I would love to meet you. Okay, Ryan, you're up. All right, one more announcement for us. I'm very, very excited about this. This is something that um, our worship arts team has actually been planning for years. Um, but we're finally going to have our first gathering on January the 23rd. We're calling it the Spectra Creative Collective. And so what this is, is if you would consider yourself some type of creative. So maybe you're a painter. Maybe you've seen some of the incredible painting and the poetry that gets hung up for the different series that, that Spectra does. Um, but we're going to expand it a little bit more. So, so painter, poets, um, if you write spoken word stuff, if you're a photographer, um, man, if you're a storyteller, if, if you're a writer, whatever, whatever it is that you do, any type of creative component. And I, I want you, I challenge you to challenge me to see if what you do is not considered creative, because I guarantee it is. But any, any way that you create and you worship through that creation process, we want you to be a part of this. And so we're going to meet in FSM um, on the 23rd. And so there's a QR code up here. <clears throat> we need you to sign up. So if you're creative in any way, come be a part of this. We're going to feed you dinner this night, and we're just going to talk vision of what we can do as creatives in this church, how we can worship, how we can inspire each other to worship through whatever art form God has called us to worship through um, in a creative way. And so, uh, so scan that QR code. Um, we do need you to sign up so we have the right amount of food. Um, but I'm so excited for this. We've got some awesome guests that are going to share some art with us um, at that gathering. So again, on the 23rd. Church, let's continue to worship. Let's stand together. Let's continue to sing songs.
and we can sing hallelujah because we have a risen Savior. He's conquered the grave and he's given us hope and assurance and salvation because of Jesus, because of him alone. God, we love you. We praise you. It's in your son's name. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we this morning? Good. It's not too bad. Um, welcome to January. Uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, Happy New Year. Uh, for those of you that missed last Sunday, if you did, uh, Clark got up here uh, last Sunday. It was January 1st. It was New Year's morning. And um, he, he put up in front of us on the screen some of the more popular New Year's resolutions. And he asked kind of who's making New Year's resolutions in the room. And I was surprised, you know, a little bit fewer than I would have guessed uh, were making New Year's resolutions. Um, but the reality is many of you in the room, whether you've kind of made a New Year's resolution, you're really going to try to stick with it. We all know what it's like to try to set goals in life to maybe improve certain things or avoid certain things. We all know what that's like, and, and the reality is for maybe many of you in the room, I would guess, if you set a New Year's resolution or even if you already kind of maybe has something in the back of your mind, for some of you, already one week in, it's over. Like you had it in the goal, you were ready on New Year's Eve, and you're one week in, and it's already done. What's interesting is there's all sorts of articles and blogs and books that are written on how to set appropriate goals and, and meet and find those goals, and yet, uh, I did some little research on this, the average New Year's resolution, this is according to surveys, the average New Year's resolution in America is over by early February. So they make it about a tenth of the way through the year, and that's with, if people are being honest, which I you know, struggle to believe most of the time. So... Why is it that we are constantly trying to set goals and yet frequently finding ourselves struggling to make them, meet them? I, th I think it's pretty simple, right? Like the explanation is pretty easy. Like, I want to achieve this goal. Like, I want to read more in 2023. But you know what happens? Life happens. Like, I want to be, I want to work out more in 2023. But life happens and it gets in the way in circumstances, the same circumstances you were experiencing on New Year's Eve, they await you in the new year, and those circumstances can get in the way. It reminds me of a quote from a famous philosopher of the last century, and he said it really well, so I'll just quote him directly. Uh, Mike Tyson, the philosopher, said it this way. He's, he's really right on the money here. He says, everybody's got a plan when they step into that ring. Everybody's got a plan of what they're gonna do until they get punched in the mouth. And in those plans, oftentimes, they go by the wayside. Everybody's got a plan until you get hit in the mouth. And the question I want to zero us in on this morning is, what do you do when life and its circumstances or your story, it just smacks you in the face? And to make matters maybe even worse, what do you do when it seems like God ain't in it? Maybe he's a million miles away. What do you do? Now, I know this is a bit of a heavy intro. I get it. Um, welcome to 2023 at Fellowship. Um, I get asked frequently. Uh, I did student ministry for years and college ministry for years. So people would ask me, especially you know, college students that were uh, maybe about to graduate, they'd ask, uh, you know, what's, what's full-time ministry like or what's being a pastor like? You know, things you like, things that are hard. And uh, maybe they were considering going into ministry or going to seminary or something like that. And I, almost, I always have the same answer. One of my favorite things about, about this job is you get everybody's best day. I mean, you're oftentimes not just at the wedding, but you're officiating the wedding right there. You got a front row seat on their best day. You get to see the light bulbs go off and somebody understand Jesus for the first time or understand their Bible for the first time. There's nothing like it sitting across from somebody at a coffee shop. But you get to be there right next to them when they're baptizing their son or daughter. It's awesome. Really good days. And I almost always say the same thing. One of the most difficult things is you also get a lot of the worst days. And I, I recognize that as we come in this room today, some of you, this is your reality right now. And if you've lived long enough, you've been here. All of us have. Financial insecurity because of job loss. Losing somebody that you love. Loss of a child. Infertility the difficulty of relationships that go haywire and they go sour and then you gotta pick up the pieces. 
And some of you in the room, you for years have been battling sin, like you're trying to follow Jesus and battle sin well, but maybe it's one sin or a couple, and man, it just doesn't seem like no matter what you do, you ain't getting any victory in it, and it seems like God isn't helping. And it might have been weeks or months or years or decades. You're going, where are you in this, God? If you've lived long enough, we've all been there. No, I have. So what do you do? Whether you're a Christian in the room or not, this is a profound question that you've got to ask and answer. How do you handle life when it smacks you in the face? We're going to be picking up the story of an ancient group of people, an ancient people that have been exiled. They're living under enemy occupation. They're refugees far from home. And they're asking the question, God, where are you in this? Welcome to Esther and Daniel. We're going to spend the good part of this semester looking at two pieces of ancient Hebrew exile literature. We're going to try to draw some principles. As the ancient Hebrew people look around at a culture that they don't understand, it seems like it's gone crazy. How do you live and how do you walk in that culture? And we're going to drop in the middle of that by picking up the story of Esther. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn there to the book of Esther. My bet is Esther and many of your Bibles, when you turn there, there are some crisp white pages. They might even be sticking together as you turn there. Now, let me just tell you, you don't get any extra points because you know where Esther is or because when you thumb through it, you actually saw it and stopped. Use the table of contents, okay? No shame in that. Find the book of Esther. While you're turning there, we're gonna spend the next four weeks in the book of Esther. Um, out in the foyer, we've got our Daniel Esther books for sale. Uh, they're $10. Um, let me just tell you, every single semester when we do the books that we write these in-house here, um, Different people go back there to the info booth and they will drop 100 bucks and say, if anybody needs one, they're on me. Here's 200 bucks. If anybody needs one, they're on me. By the way, if you do that, thank you. Your generosity matters. If you're here and you're going, I'd love to do this study, I don't got $10. Or my wife and I, we don't got $20. Go to the booth, say, can we get one of those ones and they'll take care of you, okay? That's all, so people have taken care of you. So don't let that be an issue. So go grab them. Many of your small groups, many of our community groups can be walking through these narratives. I've fallen in love with these ancient Hebrew exile narratives. They're really cool and really compelling and we get to dive in. Now, as we dive in, let me read to you the first three verses of the book of Esther. And I'm gonna read it how I think a lot of us experience it, Okay. Here, I'm going to just read it how I think you would if you're reading this at home or at a coffee shop or something. Here it is. Cool, we're going to do Esther. That's exciting. Let's read it. All right, that's fun. Okay, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Okay, don't, don't know much about that. Uh, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, whatever that is, at that at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for his nobles and officials and military leaders, and the princes and the nobles were present. And I get for many of us, we get about three verses in to some of these Old Testament stories, and we're like, I have no idea what's going on. And we go, just take me back to Paul's letters, because they're short and sweet, and I know what's going on, okay? Now, I get it. I'm with you if you have that experience. Have you ever been in a situation where you've entered into a conversation, you didn't know what was going on or what was being said? I had this recently, some of my friends, uh, I was entering into a conversation and they were talking and one of, the pe one of my friends was telling a story to the other two people and they were laughing hysterically but I did not know what the story was about. And if you've, if you've had that experience, but I'm sure we all have, you really have three options, think about it. As you enter into that encounter, you have three options. And first thing you can do is you can interrupt and say, hold on, hold on. Start back over. I didn't hear the story, but that's kind of rude, right? The second thing you can do is you can sit down and pretend like you know what's going on and begin to laugh. <laughs> then you look like a sociopath. The third option is you can just stare at them until the story's over, but that also would come across rude. Or I guess you could do what most of us now do, which is you get your phone out and just wait for it to be over. Then you wait for the story. Okay, now I'm back in the conversation. I think that experience is what most of us have when we read Old Testament narratives. We don't know what's going on, we don't know the characters, we don't know the context, so we're like, I'm just gonna get on my phone and get out of this. Let me try to help you. We all have that experience with the Bible at times. Let me try to help you. Let's go way big picture. God has chosen a people 
the family of Abraham, that through them he might bless the world, and he redeems them out of slavery in Egypt. This is the Prince of Egypt movie, where for a different generation, Charlton Heston, let my people go. It's the story of Moses, and many scholars date that around 1400 B.C., others a little bit later, around 1200 B.C., but in a big picture context for us, we're going to fast forward, and we got the high watermark of Israel as a united kingdom under King David. This is the famous David versus Goliath. He's easy, easy to remember because it's around 1000 B.C., okay? But because of idolatry, rebellion, and sin, the nation of Israel, remember your panorama timeline, the nation of Israel gets ripped in half. This is what makes reading the Old Testament difficult is because now there's two Israels, one called Israel, one called Judah. The people called Israel, because of rebellion, idolatry, and sin, they will be handed over to the Assyrian Empire. They're kind of the, new, the, big, the big power on the block, the empire on the block. The Assyrians come in and carry them into exile about 300 years later in 722 B.C., that other nation called Judah, they're going to go about 150 more years, and then in 586 B.C., no longer is the, are the Assyrians in power, it's the Babylonians, and they carry them into exile in 586 B.C. But just like nations rise and fall today, nations were rising and falling and vying for power then, and so the Babylonian Empire, the mighty Babylonians, will fall to the new kids on the block, the Persians. And a few decades later, one of their kings is going to be Xerxes. Now, this is the same Xerxes that we see in the Battle of Thermopylae. History nerds in the room, the Battle of Thermopylae is uh, the famous battle where the mighty Persian army sent by King Xerxes squares off with the, the few valiant 300, and they hold off the Persians for a very, very long time and their bravery and their courage. Uh, just so you can see it, because our text tells us this is the Persian Empire at its height. From India, on the right, all the way to Kush, which is actually Ethiopia today, uh, right there south of Egypt. It's a huge, vast empire. At this time, it is the predominant ruling empire in this part of the world. It's the largest empire in the world at the time. And our narrator is going to drop us right in the middle of the height of the hubris and pride and arrogance of the most dominant empire in the region under this man. This is Xerxes. Our narrator drops us here and if you look as the story unfolds in chapter 1, verse 4, we're going to be told of the power and the glory of Xerxes. Look how our story begins. It's a strange place to start a, a Bible story. Here we are, ancient Persia. Here's its leader. And who's he? Well, he's about to have the party to end all parties. It's a six-month party. And what's the purpose of the party? To display the vast wealth of his kingdom and his splendor and his glory and his majesty. The narrator is setting us up to see something and it, he sets us up really, really well. Now, all of this detail, look at the next section, six to eight. All of this detail is unnecessary. The narrator could just say, Xerxes threw a big party. And we, we could imagine it, but our narrator goes out of his way to tell us, to, to give us the scene. I mean, look at it. We've got silver and gold and marble and costly stones and wine, not just wine, but royal wine, and to serve with the king's liberality, and you're drinking with no restrictions. I mean, this is how a lot of people go to college looking for this, essentially. And what we're told, and our narrator's drawing us in to see the height of the decadence of the Persian Empire. It gets even worse. Look at, what, look at what Xerxes does. I mean, his party keeps going. On the seventh day of the party, as he's displaying in his pride and arrogance the majesty of his glory and kingdom, he summons his little officials, and he says, you know what? By the way, he's in high spirits from wine. I mean, it's this big, giant party. Verse 11, bring me my queen in here. I want to display her beauty and show her off to everyone. Who is Xerxes? He's our first character in the story. In ancient Persia, he's got it all. He's got the success, the fame, the job, the money, the comfort, the power, the girl. Now, our narrator is going to want us to see through all of this. I'm going to show you in a minute. Our narrator is going to want us to see all of this and see beyond it, to see the trappings of this way of defining success and power. And by the end of the story, I think we'll see it. But here's what stuck with me. I, I couldn't get past this as I was working on this, and I'll share it with you. 
as our narrator, I think, wants his reader to see through all of this, it landed a question for me. I'm gonna ask it for you. This guy's got everything. Luxury, comfort, power, money, sexual exploitation. He's got it all. We're supposed to see through it. My question for me is, do I? Do you? In ancient Persia, I'm sure this was the good life if there ever was one. Has anything changed? Do we see through the way that our world system and culture defines beauty and power and prestige and success? Or do we look at it and does it lure us in? Comfort, security, money, success. That's the good life. I think our narrator wants us to see things with a different perspective. That's the purpose of exile literature. Let me show you. Before we go further, I think it'd be helpful for us to do what most commentaries call introductory material, background material, unique features of this text. It's the part, if you ever read a commentary, which I'm sure some of you have, it's the part most of us want to skip. We got to do some background work on the book of Esther. Who's excited? It's about what I thought. Four of you were excited. We get to do some background work on this ancient Hebrew book called Esther. Who's excited? You're just totally humoring me, and I'll take it. All right? I will totally take it. Let's do just a couple of unique features of the book of Esther, okay? If you don't have a study Bible, write these down on the white space in your physical Bible that's at the top of the chapter one Esther. Or write it on a note in your phone. Write it in your Esther Daniel book. You need to know this as you read stories in the Bible. What are we reading? You have to know this, otherwise you're just gonna blindly read and not know what's going on, not, not know how to read it. The first thing we wanna notice is this, it is a story, not a letter, not a psalm, not a poem, it's a narrative. And we love stories, don't we? Why? They invite you in. They want you to interact with the characters, put yourself in their shoes. They're gripping, they're compelling, they're meant to be told, they're meant to be heard and then retold. How do we know with Esther? Esther especially is meant to be told and retold because Esther is read every single year, both in ancient Israel and now, at an annual feast called the Feast of Purim. We're gonna talk about it in three weeks. It's a celebration, this feast. In fact, just like our Halloween in America today, at the Feast of Purim, even today in Israel, children dress up for Purim. It's a, it's a giant party. And you're gonna see why as the story unfolds over these next three weeks. What that tells us, though, as we read Esther is we're supposed to read it celebratorily. We're supposed to read it almost knowing what's about to happen. We read it with joy, even though we're gonna drop into some hard things this morning. What's interesting is it's a story about God's deliverance, and yet it's the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned. Yahweh's never mentioned. God is never mentioned. It's as if God is absent from the whole story, yet we're gonna see it's filled with all sorts of little coincidences and irony and reversals. You gotta work for it. Our narrator is gonna let us see how God is at work, but it's never gonna come out and say it. It's exile literature, of course. It's uh, filled with, I didn't know how else to word it. You're supposed to laugh as you read it. Now, we're not gonna probably laugh out loud, because uh, that's just not the kind of literature we read very often. Uh, but it's supposed to, you're supposed to see the ridiculousness in it. I'm gonna point that out as we read chapter one in a minute. You're, you're supposed to see it and go and almost snicker, particularly at the presentation of the Persian court. It's almost satirical in the way it's describing the Persians. As a father of two daughters, uh, two of my three kids are, are girls, uh, I, I especially note this one. Women figure prominently. Go read Esther Daniel a few times through, all the way through, or listen to it, and notice this. Esther begins the story as a passive character. All of her actions have been basically told to her by the men around her. But by the end of the story, she's a leader, she's decisive, she's deliverer. And man, it's just, that's just cool uh, as I read through the story. And last is this. Uh, you're gonna have to, as you read it, face some moral ambiguity within the story. Uh, it doesn't, the bio, this story doesn't go back and put a nice little bow on everything. Can I tell you? Let me just tell you. Esther was not written to give you flawless characters to go emulate. So please don't, 
Don't, don't look at every point to do what Esther and Mordecai do. Um, it's gonna have some ambiguity as you read through it. What it's trying to show is even in the, kind of the ambiguity of these characters, Yahweh still is at work. So as you read it, there's gonna be like violence and sex and deceit and tons and tons of drinking, like tons of drinking. It's a story told at a celebration feast every single year. Just as an aside, in case you were wondering, I've had people confused by this. The Bible was not designed to give you a bunch of stories of perfect people to go emulate. It actually goes out of its way to show you the flaws of many of the characters in the stories. There's only one perfect character in the Bible, and it's our Savior Jesus, and the rest of the people in the Bible, when he shows up, they say, crucify him. The Bible only gives us one perfect character, and we have to kind of, we have to know that as we read through the scriptures. These are some of the unique features of the book of Esther. Now, just to, just to be honest with you, about the authorship of the book, it's unknown. It's an anonymous authorship. We're not sure who authored it, and as a result, we're not precisely sure when, it's being, when it is being written. Um, what we can say is, it is probably coming from an oral tradition that some author has recorded for us, whether that is a few months or years or decades after the events. And so if you have more questions about that, if that makes you feel funny, please come talk to me. I would love to chat with you uh, about that. Esther's gonna drop us into a very difficult ancient context. So let's pick up the story. Remember, where we're at is this guy's in control. He's on the throne, and it seems like Yahweh is nowhere in sight. So how does the story develop? Let's look at it. Um, What I wanna do is I wanna fly by our story the first three chapters, and I want to zero in on two characters. We got about 10 minutes to do it. Let's take a look at it. Um, Remember, Xerxes said, bring me my queen. I want to display her beauty. But in verse 12, Vashti, his queen, refuses to come. The woman says no. And look at what it says. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. As you read it this week, the rest of chapter one, just note, the men go crazy. I mean, they, they freak out. If she can refuse, what does that mean about my wife? Oh my gosh, let's start writing laws about what women can and can't do. They freak out. And that's the rest of chapter one. And as you read it, you're supposed to be laughing. Like, look how silly the Persian court and the Persian king look. I thought this was the all-powerful Xerxes. He can't even summon his wife. Then as you turn to chapter two, they come up with this brilliant idea. In their their freaking out, they say, we got an idea. Okay, Xerxes, you got rid of your queen, you kicked her out, you freaked out. Now, here's an idea. This This is an idea that comes only from like power crazed men. Here it is. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. In fact, send commissioners in every province all over the place to find all the beautiful young women in the harem and let's bring them in here and put them under Haggai. He's smart. And let's have him give them beauty treatments. And we're told, even just a few verses later, what their beauty treatments look like. It's a year. Six months of oil, six months of perfumes as they're brought in from all over the empire. I want you to just, it's a narrative. It wants to invite you in. Imagine the plight. Imagine this life of these women. We're not told how many. You're living under foreign occupation. You've been stolen away from your homeland. You've been brought into the, this, this capital city of this power-hungry king. You then spend a year go, undergoing some kind of physical treatment from somebody you don't know And then you're given one night to please the king. And if you do, he keeps you maybe in his harem, maybe even elevates you to queen. And if not, you go live a life for the rest of your life in the harem as basically a thrown away uh, trash refuge from from the king. That's your life. Now, I'm gonna be careful here. I hope the rhetorical effect will land. I've got two daughters. I hope the rhetorical effect will land here. Women in the room, especially. Can you imagine a world like this ancient Persian world where your entire value, can you imagine it? 
where your entire value is seen in your physical appearance and how well you please the opposite sex. I hope the rhetorical effect is landing. Can you imagine such a world? Isn't it sad how little things change? Isn't it sad in this broken, fallen world that we live in, how little things change from ancient Persia even to now? And by the way, dudes in the room, we got our own issues and insecurity and what, how you look at yourself. I get that too. But I read this and I go, that doesn't sound all, yeah, it's not the exact same. But value being in physical appearance and how well you please the opposite sex, not that much has changed. And we're gonna see our two characters. We're introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Esther, we're gonna see, has two names. Um, these are our Jewish protagonists in the narrative. And we're told Mordecai has a cousin. Her name's Hadassah. Now, who is she? Well, we see she has neither father nor mother. She's an orphan. And she was also known as Esther. But the two names, it probably means one of those is her Jewish name or Hebrew name, and one of those is the, names, the name given to her by her Persian masters, meaning she's growing up under occupation. And we're told that she has a lovely figure and she's very beautiful, and Mordecai's taken her in. Now, it just so happens that Esther is one of these women chosen to go in to the king, to go into, the, to, to go into Haggai and wait her turn in the harem. So who's Esther? She's gonna be our protagonist of the story. Who is she? She's an orphan, refugee, growing up in foreign occupation, who has now been stolen away to spend a year of her life in a strange land waiting to be what we would now call sexually abused by a power-hungry maniac. That's where our story drops us. And I, I bet she's asking similar questions. God, how could you be in this? What, what's going on here? Life has hit her in the face. Now, what about Mordecai? Let's look at Mordecai. His family was part of the exile when Babylon came in, so he's now, he now finds himself growing up in enemy territory. We know that he's lost at least some family members because Esther's his cousin and her parents have died, so we're not sure the relationship here, but he's lost family. At probably great cost to him, he's taken in Esther to his own, his own house. Great cost to him. But we see he's got some, there's some character in him, some integrity, he's sacrificing for Esther. We're gonna see later in chapter two, Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate, which means that's where business is done. He's got some kind of access to some important people, but he overhears a plot to assassinate Xerxes, verse 21. But instead of being like, yeah, I want him dead too. How can I help? He turns in the assassins, and as a result, they're found out, it's investigated, and they're taken away, taken out. Now, how does he get repaid at the end of chapter two? Man, that's amazing. Look at this awesome thing Mordecai has done for the king. Surely the king will honor him. We'll look at chapter th how chapter three begins. The very next verse of the story is this. After these events, King Xerxes honored who? Should say Mordecai. No, 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 Haman. Who's Haman? And there's our fourth character that we're being introduced to. Haman, we're told, is an Agagite. Now, we don't have the time to go into it. That means he's a descendant of Agag, who was a king of a nation that hated the Jews generations earlier. Mordecai did the right thing, turned in the conspirators. and He didn't get honored. Instead, his enemy gets honored. Does it get any more unfair? Where's the justice in that? And actually, it does get more unfair, and it does get more unjust, because look at what Haman does. Haman has the king send out an edict that wherever he goes, you must kneel down before Haman and pay him honor. So imagine everybody knelt down and Mordecai's over there going, I ain't gonna do it. I only kneel to Yahweh. And Haman, we're gonna see, freaks out. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel or pay him honor, he was enraged. And having learned who Mordecai's people were, the Jews, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people throughout the whole kingdom. And the rest of chapter three is him setting up an edict that this day, all the Jews are gone. By the end of the chapter, you've got Haman sitting and eating and drinking it up. So who's Mordecai? 
He's a refugee. He did the right thing, and yet his enemy is honored, and now all of his people have a death sentence, and it's being sent out to all of the nation. What do you do? God doesn't seem to be anywhere in this story. The story's meant to invite us into it. You've got a group of people, and as they look at their circumstances, it seems like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. Justice is nowhere to be found, and God seems like a million miles away. Here's the deal. I know that there are several of you in this room, and that's exactly how you feel. Maybe the circumstances are different, but you feel similarly this morning. Now, here's the, the, the frustrating thing about the book and how we're going to try to teach it. I'm not going to give you the next part. you got to come back next week. Now, here's what I do want to show you. If we look over the first three chapters, look over these first three chapters, we're going to see all sorts of little things that have to go just so to set up next week. Just perfectly in order that next week can happen. We can begin to see these little twists and turns. It's going to set up our story. Like, let me just show it to you real fast. It just so happens Xerxes got drunk through a big giant party. It just so happens he summoned Vashti, his queen. It just so happens that she refused to come. It just so happens that Vashti gets thrown out of the kingdom. It just so happens that the edict is sent out to bring in all these virgins from all over the place. It just so happens that Esther is beautiful. It just so happens that Esther gets chosen. It just so happens that she gets brought in. And it just so happens that she pleases the king. It just so happens that Mordecai overhears the assassin's plot. And all these little twists and turns, what we're going to see is that God is at work even when we don't see it. And it gives us a principle for the book of Esther. It's just kind of my working principle for this book. As you read it, just keep this in the back of your mind. What's the purpose of Esther? It's to teach the hearer, even when it looks like God's not with you, he remains faithful to his promises. So trust and obey him with courage and conviction. Even when you don't have all the answers even when you're confused, even when it's really difficult, even when you can't see a way through it, we can trust and obey him because he remains faithful to his promises. This is the story of the Bible. If you read the Old Testament, you're like, man, this is a mess. And yet through it all, God is working to bring his promises to bear. And then just a few decades later, we're gonna see another Hebrew. He's gonna be staring down injustice. He's going to be looking his unfair accusers in the eye. He's going to be falsely tried and convicted, beaten and bruised, shown dishonor instead of honor, shown shame. As we, as we see the story of the Bible in its fullness, we see Jesus in the garden and we see Jesus on the cross. Whatever your answer is to this question, we're gonna turn and sing because we need to process through song. Whatever your answer is to this question, it's an important, profound question you, we all have to answer. Jesus on the cross tells us two things that it cannot be. Here they are. Number one, it can't be that God's a thousand miles away, a million miles away. Jesus comes into the mess. He enters into the brokenness. It can't be that God's a million miles away. And the second thing, it can't be. Whatever your answer is, there's two things that can't be in the face of Jesus on the cross. It can't be he's a million miles away. The second thing is, it can't be that he doesn't love you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. I know many of you in the room, that's where you are today. We've all been there and we're all gonna be there. Through tears sometimes without the answers, sometimes racked with confusion, even when it looks like God's not with you, can we trust and obey him with courage and conviction because we see that all the promises of God are yes and amen in the face of Jesus. Even we don't get it. Welcome to the book of Esther. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to sing and reflect, we just need some time right now through the words we're about to sing, through the promises that they uh, cling to, help us 
be honest before you, even if we don't get it. Remind us that you're working all things to make your promises come to bear and help us to learn to trust you with courage and conviction right now. We ask it in Jesus' name, our King. Amen.
faithfulness displayed week after week as this, this narrative unfolds. And so I encourage you, come every week this season, uh, this series, to learn the story, to, to learn more, to feel more of God's faithfulness that we see displayed in the books of Esther and Daniel. Before we leave this morning, I want to teach you a little refrain that we as a worship team wrote. Um, we write a lot of songs for different series, and, and this this series, we thought it would be appropriate to write a benediction. And so um, over the next few weeks, we're going to sing this as we leave. And so hopefully here, here in a few weeks, after a few times we sing it, 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 will, uh, it will grow in your heart so you will learn it. And so I'm going to sing it through once, um, and then we're going to join in and sing together. So it goes like this. Press on, press on, we're safe in his arms. Troubles and trials come our way and see peace show grace hold fast to your faith for our Savior forever will reign. So we're gonna sing that over each other before we leave this morning. So church. Together, let's try to sing this out. Sing, press on. Two, three, one, two. Press on, press on. We're safe in His arms. When troubles and trials come our way, Great week of worship, church. We'll see you next week.